This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I was never quite good enough for my parents. You know, because I didn't study, I, there were always a couple of girls who did better in school than me. And it was always, can't you do better? And there's this one boy who more often than not got better grades than me. They put him in front of me as a, as a shining example. And I remember one day I came back with an exam result and I got a B. And my mother looked at this thing and she says, well, you got a B? And I says, yeah, but nobody else got a B. Everybody, everybody else got C's and D's. Did they give out A's too? I was never good enough. For the longest time uh, into my adult life, I would tell people that I'm still trying to please my mother. Albrecht stopped at nothing to escape the humble upbringings of his childhood. His overwhelming ambition meant he would do anything to succeed. I was just super ambitious. I knew I was going to be a tenured professor because tenured professors in those days in, in Europe uh, were considered like demigods. They were the upper crust of society. They made a lot of money too. And also the adoration of the people, you know, the little people. Albrecht excelled in college, even earning the prestigious Karl Marx Scholarship, an award limited to only 100 concurrent recipients in the entire country. I went through three years of study. There was general chemistry, inorganic chemistry, organic chemistry, and I aced the program all the way through. I was by far the best student in that group of 60. And this was already an elite hand-picked group. I knew that uh, there were rewards to be gained. The most prestigious one was the Karl Marx scholarship. That one paid 450 marks a month. That was a lot of money for a student. My mother was like super proud. I mean, I was the golden boy. Ever since I aced the, the last year of high school, she knew that I was very special in her mind. She knew that I was going to eventually wind up to be a tenured professor, a dream job. The title professor was only given to the top tier. There weren't like hundreds of professors at a university. There were maybe 50. They were the pillars of society, particularly in a, in a university town like Jena. So I would have joined the elite. And I was on my way. With that scholarship, I knew I was on my way. There's nothing would stand in the way there. And I was a party member. My, my path was clear in front of me. Nothing could stand in between me and that tenured professorship. And I might have become one of the youngest tenured professors in the country. I had everything. In the lab, Albrecht was as imprecise as he was fast. But forever the great improviser, he managed to ace the lab sessions as well. We spent a lot of time in the lab, and in the lab, while you're doing your experiments, there's a lot of socializing going on. And you, you're like really close to your neighbor, maybe five feet distance where they do their stuff and you do yours, and you can talk all the time and sing and do all kinds of things. We were 12 in our group, and there were two ladies. Both of them had a crush on me. Now, one I knew, and she, she just liked me because I was so smart. She thought, you know, smart people are the best people on the planet. I ignored her. The other one was kind of cute. 
And this is where I was clueless. I thought she had a crush on a friend of mine who was next to her. And I confided into another friend of mine. I said to him, Traudel, that was her name. Traudel just loves the guy and he doesn't know it. Well, I didn't know she had a crush on me. Analyzing this, later on, I realized that every time she looked at me, she did the, the, the blinking of the... the and that's a, that's a telltale sign, but not for somebody who doesn't know. One night, we all were out dancing again in the student club, and we walked out together, and she grabbed my hand. I wasn't drunk, but inhibitions were gone. So I took her to my dorm room and we made love. The two had a one-night stand, but Albrecht was not looking for a serious relationship. Weeks later, Albrecht was approached again by Edel Trod. She told me that she was pregnant. You know, by the way, abortion wasn't even a thought because abortion was illegal in, in those days. So she was going to give birth. And I was incredibly ill-behaved towards her because I, I didn't know how to, how to deal with this. It was an, a very awkward situation. And I didn't have sort of a mentor or somebody I could confide in because, quite frankly, my contemporaries, the, the folks that I was interacting with, they looked up to me. I didn't talk to her anymore. You know, we went our separate ways. We didn't have daily interaction. We occasionally passed each other on the street, nothing. Now, I did go visit her after she gave birth, but I wasn't, I was, I mean, she was alone. I knew I would have to pay child support, and I did that. That's one of the worst things I have done in terms of n not getting married to her is one thing. That's, that's acceptable. But I didn't know how to handle this. I was completely immature. Albrecht was now father to a brown-haired boy named Gunter. Once again, Albrecht pushed himself away. He did not stick around and embrace the role. Fatherhood simply did not fit into his ambitious plans. I was making steps up the ladder in society, even as a student. I had become a party member. The party was actually... Uh, very strong when it came to moral behavior of party members. And fathering a child out of wedlock, that was not a good thing. They would normally take you in and like, read you the riot act, and maybe not throw you out of the party, but tell you to do the right thing. It was a very moralistic kind of uh, society at the time. Nobody ever talked to me. I was already a star. I did not explicitly know it. But nobody, but not, nobody said a word. She was in the way. That, that kid was, was in the way. There were no feelings of guilt. I was really, really cold-blooded selfish. I had no feelings left for some reason. That, that all comes back as you mature, but I wasn't. See, the, the other thing is that that happens when you become a star too quickly. You're not really maturing. You know, you start believing in all the compliments that you're getting and all the accolades, and they were nothing but. I didn't fail at anything. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Alden Ehrenreich. This is The Agent.
I was on a one-way street. I needed to go to the United States. She could not be allowed to interfere with that. There was no turning back. It was clear that I was going to become Henry Van Randall. Soviet troops were all over the place in Afghanistan today. Neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. They were afraid that Ronald Reagan might want to accelerate the end of the world. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I created for myself an artificial dual personality. I had two of them. The spy job got in, in the way of my real job. I knew that the FBI would never find me. I had a dream one night. I think I need to look for him again. I need to find him. Chapter 2. The Mission Albrecht had fathered a son at the exact time he was rising in prominence as a student and as a leader. He left the mother and their child behind, instead voraciously pursuing his own success. As he became a standout student and leader, the party had their own plans for Albrecht. I was approached by the leadership, the youth leadership of the university to become a candidate for deputy chief. Now we're talking about 5,000 students. And, and deputy chief means, you know, you do this for two years and then you become the head of the organization. The way I operated, I was really good at organizing things and I had high energy. I would have possibly wound up in government. They came also, uh, the party leadership of, of Section Chemistry talked to me about possibly becoming the first secretary of, of that group. I would have been the youngest, period, in the entire university. Cold War tensions intensified, and Germany was right in the center of it all. To counter the success of capitalism in West Germany, East Germany needed to recruit all up-and-coming stars for the communist cause. The battle between communism and capitalism was being waged across the globe, as each side looked to expand alliances and influence. A revolutionary administration in the capital of Quang Tri province, the first capital they've captured in the whole war. The Vietnam War, for us, was proof that capitalism, particularly the United States and uh, its client states, were evil, period. South Vietnamese President Tu flew to Hue today to confer with the What was also happening during that time frame was that the Third World was moving closer towards the Soviet Union. President Richard Nixon and General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union Leonid Brezhnev put on a brave face and embraced peace during a White House visit in 1973. I find in my personal chats with the General Secretary that he likes Western movies, as well as some others, but he likes Westerns in particular, and so do I. But because this is a house of peace, every one of them has checked his holster belt with the pistols at the door before he came in. But behind the scenes, manipulations and machinations of the truth were happening on a nearly daily basis. So we just really were convinced that there was a lot of evil coming out of the United States and coming out of West Germany. And there was a lot of enthusiasm uh, about, you know, young people of the world unite for peace. We were still convinced that the economic system, the socialist economic system, would eventually triumphant over the capitalist system. 
that's what we always bragged about. We had no unemployment. And in the West, there was always like a certain percentage of people that were unemployed. Around this time, on a Saturday morning, Albrecht was studying in his dorm room when most of his fellow students were relaxing back home. There was an unexpected yet fateful knock on the door. A mysterious man had come to talk to him about a position in the government. Albrecht had a hunch what he was really after, but played dumb with the stranger. So this, this man who never gave me a name, not even a code name, invited me to meet him a week later at the number one restaurant in town, Die Sonne, The Sun. Great place, good food, the best food that you can have, and that, that was a good incentive. And I was curious, you know, where this was going to go. We already determined with our dialogue that we had sort of between the lines that uh, this was going to be an attempt to recruit me for some espionage work. This was not like, you know, can you come and work with us to supervise the rambunctious population? (laughs) No, this, this, this this was interesting. So I was looking forward to meeting this guy. Clearly, this was all good, all positive, because this was new information about something that could be useful for me in some way. A 22-year-old Albrecht headed to again meet up with this stranger and confirm whether his suspicions were true. He had plans to become a professor of chemistry at one of East Germany's prestigious universities, but this meeting just might change all of that. So I get to the place, I I think it may have been early afternoon. That's the time when Germans eat the biggest meal of the day. I step into the restaurant and I see the fellow sitting at the far end at a table, but there was another fellow sitting next to him. This, it was not unusual in those days in, in East Germany for strangers to share a seat at a table because there were not enough seats available. So if, if you see it's a table and there's a seat open, you ask the person, I say, is the seat taken? If not, you sit down and you may talk or you may not talk. So there was this other guy. So now I was worried. I was already knew, I knew there was a secretiveness to, to this encounter. So I was cautious. I thought this might be a stranger. So I just inched forward in the direction, but my acquaintance got up and walked towards me and he says, come on in. The other fellow just uh, got up and my German friend, quote unquote, said the following things. I'd like to introduce Herman. We are working with our Soviet comrades. One, two, three, I was with the KGB. I knew that, Soviet comrades, that's KGB. And then he said, I gotta go, and he disappeared. So the man who recruited me, and he never gave me his name, and he just, just walked away and left me with Herman. Herman was Albrecht's new contact, who spoke German, but with a distinct Russian accent. We had a nice conversation. We talked about stuff. It was small talk. This was in a restaurant, so there was no KGB talk. You know, we talked about studying chemistry, what are your plans, and, and then let's meet again. Yeah, sure. I mean, KGB, right? What I knew about the KGB was it had in its ranks the most ardent revolutionaries. It was protecting the achievements of the revolution and was very instrumental in in, uh, defending the Soviet Union and East Germany from the aggressive Americans and West Germans. The most powerful 
possibly organization, not just intelligence organization, organization in the world. So that's a big one. That flatters you. Albrecht walked home from the restaurant with a million thoughts running through his head. He thought about the excitement of becoming a real-life agent for the KGB. Yeah, uh, it was mostly good, but clearly I hadn't really attached my future to this opportunity. At the time, there was a romanticism spun around undercover agents, both in the Soviet Union, which I didn't know at the time, but also in East Germany. Uh, there were a couple of books written and a TV series about one of those super spies who operates in West Germany. And he, he does all kinds of heroic things. He, he also does well with the women. The communist James Bond. <laughs> a little more realistic, not with superpowers, but super spy. There was a, a long-running series, and they would release uh, one episode around Christmas every year. And we would all wait for that. It was called The Invisible Visor, Das Unsichtbare Visier. And the main actor in this uh, uh, series was Armin Müller-Stahl. He's still alive. He lives in the United States, and he's done, some, he's done pretty well in Hollywood. Now 90 years old, Armin Müller-Stahl is an award-winning actor, seen in such American movies as Angels and Demons, Music Box, and Shine. But most of his early work was done in East Germany from 1973 to 1979. He played the main character in Das Unsichtbar Vassir. The series was created as a counterpart to the West's James Bond spy character, designed in cooperation with the Stasi the East German intelligence and secret police organizations. The romantic notion of becoming a spy like Mueller-Stahl's character was intriguing, to say the least. Real-life Eastern spies like Mueller-Stahl's TV character were called Scouts for Peace. Kundschafter des Friedens. Scouts on behalf of peace. It was a really romantic notion. He was serving peace. So it wasn't scouts for the revolution, it was peace. Mind you, this is bigger than just communism. It's mankind, it's all of us. If I could be one of those ambassadors for peace, I would do some, th something really good for world peace. And, uh, and I would also be able to travel and have experiences that I otherwise wouldn't have. I have always had an adventurous nature. I was always pretty bold to a point of recklessness, but the combination of wanting to do all these weird things but knowing where the borderline is was probably very appealing to the KGB because that's what is needed for, for doing the job of, a, of an illegal undercover agent. Albrecht was only focused on the heroic aspects of intelligence work. He had no clue concerning the very dark side of Stasi and KGB operations. I didn't even know the horrendous work that the Stasi did to keep East German citizens in line. I had no clue. To me, the Stasi was something necessary, and there were some criminals that needed to be dealt with, and there were some enemies of the revolution that needed to be dealt with, and the KGB was just a bigger brother. We had some, uh, some reports about certain agents that worked for the KGB that did heroic stuff. All the internal suppression, oppression that that was uh, implemented by the Stasi and the KGB was not known to somebody like me. 
So to me, KGB was all good. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Albrecht and Herman began a series of regular meetings. Herman was not his real name. Albrecht was certain of that. And he was not clear about the next step in this dance. As the conversations grew more serious and more specific, the two would frequently meet in Herman's car. I would park the car sort of at the edge of town, and I would have to walk that way, and I was worried about somebody seeing me entering a car. So I would always look around and make sure that there wasn't anybody in the neighborhood that knew me. I knew instinctively this this was a secret, right? You don't talk about it. And he pretty soon then made it a point to tell me that whatever we're talking about, you can't talk about this with anybody, not your best friend, not anybody in the party, not your mother, period. I had become a Soviet state secret. Think about it. The next step in the training of a possible illegal was a series of field exercises designed to test whether Albrecht was the one above the many recruits who might be a good fit for the role of a KGB agent. So Herman, one day we meet, he says, Berlin wants to talk to you. And I said to him, okay, how long? When? He said, well, we need about three weeks. I said, that's not possible. At that time, I was already employed by the university. And I said to uh, Herman, you know, I I can't just take three weeks off. What do I tell him? I have to have a real strong reason to disappear with you for three weeks. He said, I'm going to take care of it. And the next time we met, there was a letter. Comrade uh, Albrecht Dietrich is hereby ordered to come to Berlin. They want me for special training for three weeks. I had my cover story. As his first task, Albrecht was given instructions to meet another agent in Berlin. That was my first training trip, period. That's when I got on a train and went to a big city that I didn't know. I didn't know Berlin, and I had to meet somebody whom I didn't know at a certain time, at a certain place, and we would exchange code phrases. So this was like very realistic, my first clandestine meeting. Very much a forerunner of many meetings I had later on in the West. Like a scene right out of a Hollywood movie, the two undercover agents would meet in public, each holding a code name and a secret phrase. If the phrase was correct, then the meeting was on. If not, Albrecht would apologize and walk away. There was a phrase, that question and answer, that indicate that you have the right person. And there was also some kind of a sign, that something you had on you that would indicate that this may be the person you want to talk to. Like there could have been a newspaper or a bag with an odd color or something like that. I get 
to the spot at the exact time. It was important. You show up on time. It was drilled into me right away. Not early and definitely not late, but also not early. You address the person with some kind of an innocent-looking phrase such as, haven't we met in Berlin a couple of years ago? And he would say, no, I don't think so. It was Leipzig. This is something that if you ask a stranger, they would just say, no, you got, you, you got that wrong. They wouldn't come back with this answer that indicates sort of a verbal handshake, right? Anyway, so we had the handshake. He introduced himself as Boris, and he took me to his car that was parked around the corner. We talked for a little while. He told me we're going to stay here for three weeks find a place to, to stay, not a hotel. And there was, some, there was a possibility to find a room in a private house. I found one. He told me, number one, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of Western uh, magazines to read, which was really great because that was forbidden literature for us. Uh, number two, we will talk a little bit about what it's like to operate as an agent. So he introduced me to the concept of dead drops, secret writing, and how communication happens. Then I had to also do one of the things I hated the most. I had to go and, and knock on a door, introduce myself under some pretext, and talk to the resident there about whatever. But the task was really to find out something about a relative of theirs who lived in the West. I hated doing that. But I managed... I typically came up with a cover story. I'm a student and I'm, I'm doing sociology or, or something like that. I have some questions. I, I'm doing a survey. And that's how you can get, engage people. And then when you're done with a survey or you, you segue into a little more small talk. And before you know it, you know, somehow if, if you do it right, people will tell you a bunch of things, even though you're a total stranger. Albrecht's teachers grew more confident in his abilities and prepared him for his most daring mission yet. He was headed to West Berlin. The last time he was in Berlin, Albrecht had not been able to get anywhere near the city 11 years ago, the infamous day the construction of the Berlin Wall started. But now, he was on the other side, and he needed help to sneak across. They sent me to West Berlin uh, on a half-day trip. I got a passport with my own name, and it was stamped to show that I'm allowed to go to West Berlin. They uh, got me across the border through the one place that was guarded only by the Russians. It was the subway system. I was waved right through, get on a train, and then at the station that I was supposed to get off, I appeared. As soon as Albrecht emerged from the subway, he felt a distinct difference between the two parts of the divided city. The visual contrast was inescapable. East Berlin was filled with the cold of brown and gray colors, while the West showed off the entire spectrum of the rainbow, designed to pretty up the city, making it feel alive. In the East, we had maybe two or three colors. It was beige, gray, and maybe a washed out blue. It's nothing, and in the West, everything was painted. The task for me that day was only to make some steps, go take a train from here to there, walk around, look at the neighborhood. I, I bought a, 
a sausage and had a had a beer. It was really good. It was maybe the whole trip lasted two hours. I got back and all good. Though this was a limited version of a spy mission, this was a big deal for Albrecht. Yet he took it all in stride. No fear, no worries. He wasn't aware of it, but this short trip to the other side was a standard test the KGB gave to all their recruits, many of whom failed. The discomfort, even fear, of operating behind enemy lines was too much for most. Now, this was an important trip. I didn't know it. I did what I was asked to do. I met an ex-classmate of mine later when I was already in training in Berlin. Accidentally, I met him, and he confided in me that he was recruited by the Stasi to go spying in West Germany. He also had this test trip to West Berlin, and he peed in his pants. He couldn't handle the fact that he was in enemy territory. And he went back and told him, I can't do this. I, I just can't. See, we knew that there was nothing but bad stuff on the other side of the wall. And it takes you a while to figure out it isn't that bad. It's quite normal. And you go there, and you know you're working either for the Stasi or the KGB, and, you know, you might be afraid that, you know, somebody might ask you a question. Or, you, what are you doing here? You, you, you look funny. You wear strange clothes. You know, all this stuff. Uh, you have to be somewhat fearless to do that. It sounds odd, but the way we were trained and wired, it was really an important, an important test. Albrecht had passed this first test, but what he really wanted was an assignment in the West. Albrecht had executed a nearly flawless three-week mission in Berlin. He had successfully performed all the tasks he had been given and he had earned the trust of his trainer, Boris. But where was this all going? I remember this as if it was yesterday. It was next to last day of my uh, planned stay in Berlin. So I meet him, He, <clears throat> I get in his car, and he's driving me to the, the section of Berlin is called Karlshorst. And Karlshorst, the place where the, the Soviet military had its headquarters. Big complex. Albrecht approached the military facility and they were waved in by security. He had no idea what was on the inside of the complex. It looked like there was always some military presence in there. And it was just like uninviting. Let's put it this way, cold, large looming, potentially threatening, if you're the wrong person. <laughs> Part of that complex was occupied by the KGB. I didn't know this, so we're driving, we're driving through there. He had to, Boris had to show his ID. And then we walk along some very long corridor and he didn't tell me what to expect. We had to wait a little bit in, in an anteroom, and then we were ushered in. And there was this little man, a real tiny man sitting behind the big desk. And I remember the office had some paraphernalia that said KGB. There was a bust of Dzerzhinsky's uh, head on the, on the desk and a couple of paintings. This was most likely the head of the KGB division in East Germany. 
So totally unimpressive, uninspiring. But when he opened his mouth, there was strength coming out of that man. Now he spoke only Russian. Maybe maybe he knew German, but he 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 limited himself to to Russian. You know, I had school Russian, so I understood some of the stuff that he was saying. And occasionally, I asked Boris to translate. He started with a, about a 10-minute rant about our purpose, the purpose of the KGB, the enemy, the class enemy, the erection of communism across the world. And, and I'm saying to myself, huh? <laughs> And then, pretty much out of the blue, he turned and made it personal. He says, so uh, what, are you, are you in or not? And since I was not prepared, I stalled. And I remember I said a couple of really silly things. I said, well, I'm not really trained yet. This, this is what I came up with my feeble mind at the time. I said two things, I need to learn how to drive a car and, and type with a typewriter. Where that came from, I had no idea. And he looked at me, he was a little annoyed, and he said, don't you worry, we'll train you. That's not a problem. I need a decision by tomorrow noon. Next time on The Agent. You don't know what kind of a background this man had, I think. There was uh, ruthlessness and cruelty in there. There was, there. there was all kinds of bad things going on. The flattery that comes with being recruited was huge. I didn't know how special I was going to be. Already I had a flavor of what it's like to break laws. Somehow, this lady, whose name I didn't even know yet, put her head on my shoulder. I kept this from Nikolai. The Agent is a production of Imperative Entertainment in association with Windjoy and is created, written, produced, and edited by Jason Hoke. Narration by Alden Ehrenreich. Executive producers are Jason Hoke, Jack Barsky, and Alden Ehrenreich. Sound engineering and additional editing by Shane Freeman. Our original score by Joshua Klebe. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. If you'd like to learn more about this story, make sure to read Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Entangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America by Jack Barsky. Have questions? Email us at podcast at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love this show, tell your friends and leave us a positive review. Thanks again for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen. 
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.